Hey everybody, welcome to British Church UK's podcast. Our vision is to be planted for the community here in Launceston. We pray the messages you listen to on our channel will bless you this week. Oh, morning. How are we doing? Have your weeks been? Have they been good? Okay, let's just go for a little kind of participation moment here. Up here for good? Good weeks? Okay, bless you. If you've had a good week, uh, not so good weeks. Okay, bless you guys especially. If you're sat next to someone who, who had not such a good week, pray for them as we spend time together now. Over these last three weeks, we've been asking ourselves, what's in our hands? In week one, we kind of reached out in faith to grasp at the hem of Jesus, the, his cloak, knowing that it would bring healing and restoration We remember that we come with faith and Jesus meets us with love and there's transformation. In week two, Lucy reminded us of all of the resources that we hold in our hands, all of these things that are available for God's purposes. She shared with us the story of this reluctant leader, Moses, and how he had to throw the staff to the ground to surrender it for God to use it for his purposes. What have you got in your hands that's too much at this moment that you need to throw to the ground? Surrender it and let God work his purposes. And then last week, Sam set us in hope. Hope in hopeless situations. We read from this familiar passage of Jesus feeding thousands of people with the meager resources offered willingly by a child. Jesus receiving what we have in our hands and then transforming it into something beyond our wildest dreams. And this week we come into land with the reminder that we, each one of us, this whole church family and beyond, that's all of you online as well, we're all held in God's hands. As a church in a season of change, we traveled from asking what's in our hands What's God equipped us with? We've traveled through this miraculous, hope-filled, transforming hands of Jesus and now into the awesome reality that we are held intimately, personally, in God's life-giving hands. And the whole of this series has kind of focused on these digits, these things that hang around on the ends of our arms, our hands. But this repetitive question of what's in our hands, metaphorically or otherwise, is really asking us what's in our hearts. What's in our heart? And this week we're going to deepen that question by seeking out what is God's heart for each of us. The reality is that we're held in God's hands. Isaiah 49:16 says, I have engraved you in the palm of my hands. This truth of being held by the Almighty God is a wonderful truth, a safe haven in every storm. But then what? What happens next? Having worked as an RNLI surf lifeguard, I know that every person who's ever been rescued basks in the relief of being saved. I've been rescued myself in that moment of being plucked from the ocean. I'm sat there going, thank God. But as the boat nears shore, I'm then going, what next? 
First of all, I have to face all the people that know me and say, you should know better. To process this question, we need to understand something of the character of the one in whose hands we are held. Who is this God? Who does God say he is? Now, a number of years ago, a great book came out. It's probably one of my all-time reads that just spoke something new into my life. Uh, it was called God Has a Name by a really accessible teacher called John Mark Comer. He's an American. You might have to get over that. Uh, but he's a great writer and gospel communicator. Uh, it is his absolute gift to grasp the languages of the gospel and apply them to our lives today. And his premise is this. The first time in the Bible that God says who he is comes in Exodus 34. So we're back to this Moses, this reluctant leader. And you need to remember that this is the whole time when Moses is trying to lead the Israelites to God's promised land. You know, this is the Moses who needs a huge amount of convincing to lead. He almost flatly refuses to do it in the face of God. And so because he says yes, he makes God promise to be with him in whatever he does, through it all. And in the chapters preceding this moment where God says who he is, Moses has chiseled out these two stone tablets for God to write the law on. Then he's gone up the mountain and conversed with God. And then he comes back down to the Israelites and they're like, oh, oh, you were gone too long. So he gave up on you on God. And so we took all of our gold and we melted it down. And this calf just kind of appeared. So we thought we'd worship it. And it's like the whole mission of God is laying shattered on the floor, just like the first set of stone tablets that Moses has thrown down in disgust. And so there is a whole lot of rebuking and mess and death and all the kind of stuff that happens when we humans get life so very, very wrong. Moses returns up the mountain to God and basically says, paraphrased, can we start again? Can we start again? Please, God, can we start again? I know how many times I have cried that prayer out to God. Can we start again? And it might be that you're here today sat going, God, saying to life, saying to family, saying to everything, saying to work, saying to whatever's coming at you on the horizon, can we start again? And if that's you this morning, if that's where you're feeling today, then know this. God says yes. If this is how you're feeling, know this. God says yes. He always says yes to this question. Can we start again? Yes. His ultimate answer to this question is the very person of Jesus. And if you want to pray out this question of, can we start again? If you want to pray that with someone today, I'll be here after the service. There are others here in our church family who would love to pray with you. Don't let this moment pass. Seek someone out. Pray with them. Expect God to do something in your life. Can we start again? Yes, we can. For Moses, this question of, can we start again? Well, in his timeline, Jesus is a way off yet. So God agrees to reveal his glory and his character to Moses as a covenant of their relationship. And so he tucks Moses into this cleft of rock high up on the mountainside. And he says, you can only look on my back. My glory is too much for you otherwise. You can only look on my back or you will die. Then God passes by and says this. This is how God introduces himself, his calling card, Exodus 34, 5 to 7, 
Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and sin and take us as your inheritance. The hands that we are held in belong to the God who says this of himself. I am the Lord. I am compassionate. I am gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, full of faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands. And bearing in mind this is Moses, it's billions by now. I forgive. I am justice. This is God's first declaration of who he is. It's not, I am misery. It's not, I have come that you might have really hard time making decisions about things and getting caught in moral dilemmas. It's, I am the Lord, I'm compassionate, I'm gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, maintaining love, forgiveness, justice. And it lays the foundations of the character of our God, his holiness. And it tells us that his hands... This sacred place that we're so intimately held in, his hands, God's hands, are compassionate. Anybody need some compassion this morning? They're gracious. Anybody needing a top-up on that? Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, literally leaping in love and faithfulness, maintaining love full of forgiveness and justice. It's an extraordinary place to be held in the hands of our loving God. Just pause for a moment and take that in. I want pause, soak it in for a moment. Now, if you'd like to, close your eyes and I'm going to speak these words over you. You don't have to. If you want to, you can. You are held in the hands of Almighty God, preciously intimately held, held with compassion, held with graciousness. These hands are slow to anger. God's love and faithfulness abound for you. God's hand will maintain his love to and for you. God's hands are the place of forgiveness and justice. Oh, how good it is to be in God's hands. Keep soaking that in. Take a moment. And then again, if you want to, I invite you to bring your hands in front of you. Take a breath. Hold on to this space. Have a good stare at those hands. It's where we started in week one, looking and wondering what these hands might be. But if you want to bring them before you do,
We're called to be imitators of Christ, to look to God as our example. So if you choose to offer your hands as a gift to God, then maybe speak these words of intent over your hands. These hands will be tools of compassion and grace. These hands will be slow to anger. From these hands, love and faithfulness will abound. With these hands and for God's purposes, I will maintain love to others. Lord, let my hands be instruments of your forgiveness and justice. Here is the character of God, the God in whose hands each one of us is held. But there's something in verse 7 that potentially catches us slightly unaware. And it says, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Amongst this roll call of God's goodness comes a language of punishment. And it's really important that we address this and understand it in its context. This God who is good and giving and gracious and faithful and loving and slow to anger is also righteous and holy. If he's not righteous and holy, he's not God. Where there is wrongdoing, sin and rebellion, God can't stand with it. He can't abide in it. His righteousness can only be righteous. It can't be wrongtuous. There's a reason that's not a word. This is the way of Old Testament law and this is the way of God, the holy truth that sinful wrongdoing and consequence Someone has to pay. We know the answer to this bit, so hold on. And my own observation of this challenging and sometimes distracting idea, <laughs> I pause before I say it because I hate it as a phrase, but generational sin, even saying this phrase feels like a bomb going off inside me. But my understanding of this in the context of this passage, and again I'm going to say I am no authority on this, but my own observation is that the passage is speaking of wickedness, rebellion, and sin, that it, the impacts are long-lasting. Okay? The impacts are long-lasting. It's not like an absolute. It's not like, well, if someone does this thing, then children in the third and fourth generation will pay. It's an expression of what we might understand perhaps poorly as ripple effect. In 1947, the UK handed over the issue of partition from Israel to the UN. There was an area for Israel and Palestine, Palestinian Arabs, and an area for Israeli Jews. But the impacts of this desperately poorly handled power collision have been felt by successive generations of Arab and Israeli children beyond the third and fourth generation. Was this created by God? No. Has God caused desperate pain for two nations and an internationally dispersed people? No, it's the multi-generational effect 
of wrongdoing by many peoples and many parties over many years. God doesn't do wrong. God does right. God is righteous. And so the righteous and holy God, the God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, rebellion and sin, this righteous and holy God digs into all that he has and he gives from all that he has and he forgives again and again and he gives more than anyone or anything could ever give. And he takes upon himself in the form of his son all of our wickedness, rebellion and our sin, all our wrongdoing and brokenness, all our family history and he makes a way where there was no way and this way still holds true it's still wide open today, and Jesus still says, come. If you're concerned about your family history and the things that you might wonder separate you from a holy God, bring them to Jesus and let him refine them, transform them, and replace them with his all-consuming love. Once again, we're back to that picture of the hemorrhaging woman. When we seek God with faith, he meets us with his love. There is transformation, healing, freedom, forgiveness, peace, hope. When we read passages like this, we have to read them in the context of the whole gospel. Because there are so many risks. If we say, oh, I'm an Old Testament Christian, we miss out on the new covenant of love. And if we say, oh, I'm a, I'm a New Testament Christian, we miss out on a holy God who is almighty, who is I am, who is the Lord, who is righteous, who is to be revered. When we live as whole gospel followers of Jesus, we see the whole grand narrative of an awesome God who is holy, who is love, who gives of himself in the form of his son and makes a way where there was no way. Compassion, grace, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to us all. He is forgiveness. He is justice. And how does Moses respond? Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and sin and take us as your inheritance. Can I invite the worship team back to the platform? In response to the Lord, to Almighty God, who is all of these extraordinary things that I've said time and time again, compassion, gracious, slow to anger, and I've purposefully said them so many times because we need to ingrain within us this understanding of who God is. The first thing he says of himself is of a beautiful, compassionate, gracious person of justice. In response to God, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. What else can we offer but worship? And just as Moses did, what else can we do but bow the knee? 
when faced with the awesome character and person of a loving, almighty Father God who created us, who he sent his son to save us, who he holds us still. Our innate outpouring, our broken open jar of fragrance is worship. Let's pray together. Lord, you do not force us to our knees. We come here willingly with grateful, thankful, overwhelmed hearts, whether that's the physical knees of our life or the knees of our hearts that we bow before you. And although we are a often stiff-necked people, you forgive us our wickedness and our wrongdoing. You forgive us everything. So Lord, if we have found favor in your eyes, be with us and show us your ways. Trinity of love, would you take us into your hands just as you did with Moses and take us as your inheritance. If we need to start again, God says yes. If we're desperate for compassion, God says come. If we yearn to abound in your love and faithfulness, Jesus says abound in me. If we long to discern a holy, faithful, sacred direction to our lives, the Holy Spirit says, take my hand. Heavenly Father, all that we have in our hands is from you. All that we have in our hands and in our hearts we offer to you. Jesus transform us. Father, hold us. Spirit, guide us. <clears throat>